almost forgot to turn my microphone on there. My rush to set up my little show and tell moment here. If you're visiting with us again and, and you see the minister come up and he's pulling out some strange looking rocks up here. I promise there's a point to it. Uh, I'm not a weirdo. I, I, I am a weirdo, but I'm not that type of weirdo. So um, last week. We've begun a, a new sermon series uh, that we're going to be walking through probably for the next two and a half months or so. And, and this whole sermon series is based off an observation that is pulled from the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. It's, it, it's considered to be one of the texts that gives us maybe the most in-depth look at what life looked like for the early church during the first century. Uh, it's also really interesting. The, the book of Acts is one of the few places outside of the Gospels where we get the opportunity to hear directly from Jesus. Right? One of the few places outside the Gospels where we're going to find red letters in our Bible. And those red letters are going to play an important part of what it is that we're going to be talking about today. But the book of Acts it is filled with miracles. The book of Acts is filled with powerful stories from some of the most recognizable names in the New Testament. And as you read the book of Acts, what you can't help but to notice is that if there is one thing that this book is filled with, it is conversions. Uh, it gives us examples of mass conversions. It gives us examples of more personal ones. Uh, there's conversions of Jews. There's conversions of Samaritans. There's conversions of Gentiles. But all throughout this book, we see people from all different backgrounds and all different situations. They all are coming together and they're finding Jesus Christ for the first time. And upon hearing the truth of who he is, they make the decision that they are going to call him their Lord. In this particular series, we're looking at uh, nine or ten different conversion stories from the book of Acts. And what I see when I look at these conversions, what's so cool about them is that each one is unique. The situation, the, the settings that surround each one is different than the one before and different from the one that will come next. And what I told you last week is the thought that was planted in my head is that there is one particular thing that is different about all of these conversion stories. Each man or woman or child, when they come to Christ, when they were still lost, each one of them had a different distorted view of who God is. And the examples that we're going to look at are going to show that each distortion was unique and different based upon that individual's situation, their upbringing, where they found themselves. Now, of course, the need for all of them is exactly the same. They, they all need Jesus Christ as their Savior. But if we look at the man that we met last week, this man who was sitting beside the temple gate called Beautiful, this man who was crippled and disabled from birth, who was helpless... He was completely dependent upon others for everything. This man who, who probably heard whispers from the town folk that were assuming that either he or his parents were just awful people that he would deserve this type of punishment. You know, we acknowledged hopefully last week that a man who found himself in this situation, that it would not take much for his view of God to become so distorted that he would say, God, if you are even there. If there even is a God in heaven, how can you just be so cruel? Because of his personal experience, because of his personal pain that he felt in his life, his view of God became distorted. 
And he needed someone that was going to be able to come along and make him see the true God clearly. And lucky for him, two men did. They came and they showed him just how good God can be. And we started with this example last week because, yes, chronologically it is the first one in the order, but also it represents one of the most prevalent distortions of God that I think we see today. People look around them and all of the hurt and the suffering and pain and and everything bad that they see and they assume that God just isn't there. Or maybe they assume that God is some sort of a bully or God is there, but he's absentee and he just does not care. And none of those things could be further from the truth. None of them are based upon reality. But we have to recognize that these are distortions that are going to need to be rectified If that individual is ever going to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. And today we look at the second distorted view of God. The second distorted view of God that we're going to look at is a little bit different than the first. Uh, This is a distorted power or distorted view, I should say, that recognizes whatever they feel the higher power is or whatever they feel God is, is some sort of power that can be harnessed. Some sort of power that can be contained and some sort of power that they can personally benefit from. They believe that by channeling this power, that by learning all of its secrets, that they're going to be able to manipulate the world around them. That if they can learn these eternal secrets, that they can become enlightened. That they can unlock powers that maybe most of us have only dreamt of. I brought a pretty common example from our world today with me today for show and tell. Uh, My my oldest daughter, Sydney, is into a lot of real cool hobbies and interesting things. She, she, is it okay to say that you run to the beat of your own drum? Is that fair? Sure? Okay. So if you've never had a chance to talk to Sydney, she'll hate me for doing this, but you should talk to her after sermon one time. She's, She's a pretty interesting young lady, but one of the things that she's into and one of the things that she collects are rocks and crystals. Right, and it's really easy to see why she collects them. They're beautiful. I, again, I feel like a kid at show and tell, but these things are so small, so I put some pictures up on the screen if we can pop the first one up. Uh, this, this first beautiful crystal uh, that she gave me to share with you today, it's called amethyst. This one's really popular. You probably see this all over the place. But she tells me that amethyst is found all over the world, but if you want to get some of the best samples of amethyst, the best place to go is South America, Right. Perfect. I nailed it. Okay. And then she gave me this, this rock here, this beautiful kind of orange and red hued rock, uh, carnelian, this one is called. It's really pretty. It's got all different kinds of veins of red running through it. And, and she tells me that this, this rock is found in Brazil and Egypt. Still doing good? Okay, perfect. All right, the last one. I know this is her favorite because she has more of this than anything else uh, up on display in her room. Uh, malachite, this one is called. Malachite almost has this kind of emeraldy kind of look to it. Uh, best samples, Russia and the Congo. See, I pay attention. Now, here's where these crystals and these rocks can get a little tricky, though. You see, in, in our house, these rocks are something that we put on display and, and we can look at and we say, wow, isn't our God so amazing? Think of the attention and the detail that he put into his creation, even even into these rocks, to make them so beautiful. I know it's easy to appreciate how awesome our God is. If you're you're sitting on a beach and you're looking at an epic sunset going down over, well, that way, so it'd be Lake Michigan, it's pretty easy to remember how epic our God is. But have you ever considered 
how awesome he is, that when he made rocks, he didn't do what I would have done. Right? If I was the foreman during creation and somebody said, hey, boss, we need rocks. Right? Rocks would have all been ovals about this big. They would have been brown and they would have been heavy and hard. I mean, that's what a rock needs to be in order to be a rock. But God didn't do that, did he? Right? He crafted and he sculpted all of these things that would be buried underground for thousands of years just on the off chance that one day one might get dug up and put in my hands so I can use it as a sermon illustration. Think of how big and powerful our God is. That's how we view these rocks in my house, but that's not how these rocks and these crystals are viewed to a lot of folks. Right? They're not just beautiful ornaments to decorate with. They believe that they are magical and mystical vessels of power. That they have the ability to cure ailments and that they have the ability to bring power to those who possess them. Right? Basically, they believe that these stones are a way that they can harness or they can even control whoever or whatever God might be. So when they look at this beautiful little purple piece of amethyst, right, they look at this and they see it as a magic talisman that can bring calmness. Right? They see this as something that if I possess this, it will relieve my anxiety. When they look at this carnelian, right, again, they don't see a beautiful palm-sized rock that's really pretty to look at. They say this gives courage, motivation, that it helps in public speaking. It sounds like this is one maybe I should keep in my back pocket. Uh, and that it also increases coordination during physical activity. I mean, that's a pretty powerful rock if it does all that. And how about malachite? Malachite probably has the longest list of things that, that it's good for. I couldn't list them all. Protects from harmful rays from technology, they say. You know, the, I guess radiation that comes from our iPads. It's good for menstrual cramping, if that's something you suffer from. Asthma, even. Asthma, this rock helps. And, and it prevents you from getting junk phone calls <laughs> above it all. So malachite, important. Listen. It would be amazing if I could cure your depression and your anxiety with a rock that I could purchase for $19.99 at a shop on Main Street in Rochester. That would be awesome. But alas, while looking at the beautiful rock, it might make you feel happy in the moment. It is not going to cure your depression nor your anxiety. The good news is, is that Jesus will, and he doesn't even cost $19.99. He's free. It's not really the point of the message today. It's kind of the point of every message that I deliver, but it's not the main point of what we're talking about today. Today, the reason I show you these rocks is I want you to realize that there are people among us today. That, that to them, if there is such a thing as a higher power, he's just something that needs to be harnessed. If there is such thing as a, a higher plane, that that higher plane exists to bestow power upon whoever it is that can come and unlock their secrets. And then the sharing of those secrets that they unlock is something that you can profit from handsomely. And this looks a lot of different ways to a lot of different people, but, but maybe that means you sell magic rocks. Maybe that means you read palms. Maybe that means you predict the future via the stars. Maybe you're full-blown into it. Maybe you dance around a campfire during a full moon and, and you cast spells on people. Maybe you practice voodoo. Maybe you're a medium that claims that they can speak to the dead for a cost, of course. But all of these mystical, supernatural folks have come to hold a distorted view of God that says, 
that God, well, I guess in all varying different degrees, they all do understand that God is power. But, but they've settled for a cheap knockoff. Essentially, what they've settled for is they settled for parlor tricks. And their view of God has become distorted by their pursuit of money and power. They become so busy trying to monetize what limited tricks they can muster that it becomes not impossible, but it becomes improbable that they will ever be able to clearly see who God truly is. And as I always say to you, humans are going to humans. So this is not some type of new, magical, new age phenomenon that we have stumbled upon today. There were people in the first century as well that suffered from the same distorted view of God. And luckily enough for us, Luke records one such interaction that Philip and Peter and John have with a man in Acts chapter 8. But before we open Acts chapter 8, I want you to understand how we got here in Acts chapter 8. And to do that, we need to go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is one of these places outside of the gospel where we get to hear words directly from Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus says. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And shortly after Jesus says this, he ascends back to heaven. But what stays is this command to go and witness. And again, he said not just to the Jews, but he said, go to the ends of the earth. And he specifically said, I want you to go to Samaria. Samaria has been this longtime cultural and political foe of the Israelites. And Jesus, by name, specifically commands that they, too, need to go and hear the good news. So what do you think Jesus' disciples did? Did they jump right on that job? No, seven chapters go by, actually. And in seven chapters, no one goes and brings the gospel to the Samaritans. Until Saul, Saul doesn't take the gospel to the Samaritans. Saul oversees the stoning of a deacon by the name of Stephen. Saul's persecution of what they called the way became such that he was dragging men and women out of their homes and into the streets and throwing them in jail. And and because of this fright, because of this real terror and this real danger that came upon the Christians, many decided they were going to scatter. That it was wiser to leave Jerusalem behind and, and, and go out to other places in the world. One of the men who scattered, his name was Philip, another deacon of the church. And guess where Philip ended up after he left Jerusalem? Any guesses? Samaria, yeah. It would have been weird if I would have said somewhere completely different after pointing out Samaria over and over again. And while he was in Samaria, it's also really important, Philip didn't hide and cower. In Samaria, he remembered the command that Jesus gave that the gospel should be taken to the people of this region. So that's exactly what Philip does. Philip stands in Samaria and he begins to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And as he speaks, he sees crowds begin to gather. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Philip performs amazing signs in front of the Samaritans. Uh, What scripture says is that demons were cast out and that paralytics were healed. And at the sight of this power, the Samaritans respond. Acts chapter 8 tells us that they repented and that they were baptized. 
Where we want to start looking at this today is in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. In Acts chapter 8, verse 9, it starts with a but, so we need to see why that is there. Verse 9 says, but there was a man named Simon. And Simon, it says, he had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. There's a logical question that we have to answer here that I have not brought up yet because it will be divisive and some of you are not going to like the answer that I give to this. Uh, But since we're talking about this particular subject today, this is a distinction that we need to make so that we can properly understand and undertake discussing the story of Simon, Simon the magician, and the specific distortion that was clouding his vision. Okay, what the scripture just told us is that Simon practiced magic. And if I were you, what I might ask of the person standing in front of me is, Daniel, do you believe in all of that kind of stuff? Right? Do you believe in magic? Do you believe in fortune tellers? Do you believe in mediums? And I will say that logically, if I was someone who believed that there was nothing beyond the physical world, if I believed that everything that existed was only what I could see and touch and measure and understand, then I would tell you no. I would tell you that is all a bunch of fooey. See, but that's not a distortion that I carry. I know for certainty that there is more than what I can see, touch, feel, and measure. I know that there is a God. I know that he commands legions of angels. I know that Satan is real. I know that there are demons. So the question of do you believe in all of this stuff, what I have to do is I have to be humble enough to not lean on my own understanding to answer your question. I have to actually look to Scripture. I have to be willing to say, well, what does the Bible say about this? And when we look in God's Word, what it says is that, yes, this stuff can be real. The emphasis, though, has to go on the can be. A couple examples for you is I can go back to the book of Exodus. And I can look at that famous conversation that we all know where Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, bro, I'm not going to let your people go. So what he does, he and his brother, they decide they're going or I shouldn't say that. God tells them they're going to perform signs and wonders to make Pharaoh change his mind. So Aaron comes standing next to Moses and he throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a serpent. That's pretty amazing. But do you remember what happens next? Pharaoh's magicians, they come in and they do the same exact thing. Did they do that by the power of God? Right In Exodus chapter 7, what it says is they accomplished that feat using their secret arts. 1 Samuel 28 is another place I would direct you to. Uh, 1 Samuel 28, what we see is that the prophet Samuel is dead. But King Saul is having quite a bad day or a week or a couple months, and he decides that he needs to have a quick chat with him. So it says that the king goes and he seeks out a woman who we're told can speak to the dead. And scripture says this is no parlor trick. It says that she does it. It says that she summons the spirit of Samuel. So yes, I believe that this stuff exists, and I do believe that those who are practicing such things, they do not get their power from God. But from the enemy, right, they get this as a way that the enemy can continue to trick, as the enemy can continue to confuse, and the enemy can continue to distort our view of who God is. Now, the guy that we're discussing today, Simon, perhaps he did have power. 
Or perhaps he was just a con man. Perhaps he was a charlatan. We don't know. For whatever reason, Luke does not think it's important enough to actually tell us that. What Luke thinks is important, though, is to tell us what the people of Samaria think of Simon. When we look at verses 10 through 12, it says they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Is it the people who met Simon, their first reaction was is that he is great, that he is powerful. They obviously thought that whatever tricks he performed were something special. And again, while we don't know the exact nature of the tricks that Simon performed, what we do know is that when Philip and the Holy Spirit show up in town, that when cripples get up and start walking again, when demons start fleeing, the people realize that what they had defined as great, it was very, very limited. Right? They had been impressed essentially with just smoke and mirrors, but now what they see is that legs that were lame are now leaping for joy right in front of their eyes. And all of the Samaritans, all of a sudden, they, they see it all very clearly. Together, they respond. They see that Jesus is Messiah. It says the people that responded to the call and that they were baptized. But what about our magician? What about Simon? Verse 13 says, even Simon himself, right? even the sorcerer, even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Right, this, this trickster, this magician himself, he had the scales fall away from his eyes. He believes in Jesus Christ and he is baptized. Isn't that a happy ending? Let's just pray right there. Let's just stop, okay? And then we'll just leave the story there. It's a happy story. See, but Luke doesn't stop writing there. Luke tells us more to this story that we can't ignore. He continues on and he tells us that, that Peter and John are back in Jerusalem and that they get word that the Samaritan people are responding to the gospel. But they also hear that the Holy Spirit has not yet descended upon these people. And why hasn't it? It's an excellent question, but it's a question for another day because we can't fit it into this sermon today. But Peter and John, they decide that they are going to pack up and they're going to go to Samaria for themselves, and they're going to see exactly what it is that is happening there. And again, what it tells us here in the book of Acts is that when they arrived, they laid hands on the people who had been baptized, and that everyone watched. So even Simon the magician watched. And what they watched in that moment is what many refer to as the Samaritan Pentecost. This time where the Holy Spirit powerfully comes upon the people just like it did back in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. And all of this is happening, all of this is swirling around, but Simon apparently, Simon is still on the outside and he's watching what is happening. He's watching everything that's transpiring around him, and in the moment as he's watching this, this miraculous show of power, he does the exact wrong thing because of his distorted view of God. Verses 18 through 24. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you 
Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So Simon, the freshly baptized sorcerer, he sees everything that's happening around him. Again, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what it is that he witnessed. Perhaps like Pentecost, maybe people were speaking in tongues. Maybe there were tongues of fire dancing above people's heads. But, but whatever it was that Simon witnessed in that moment, it captivated him so much that his distorted view of God, that it all became, it came rushing back to him. In an instant, he went back to seeing God as this entity that could provide him with mystical powers, powers that he would then be able to profit from. Instead of falling on his knees and worshiping God for the miracles that were happening all around him, he fell back to his old tricks. Simon may have gotten wet at his baptism, but Jesus was not his Lord. Simon did not repent of his sinful ways. He did not die with Christ and and was raised again to new life. He, He simply took a bath. He got wet. And because of this, this this quote-unquote conversion story, it it ends with a question mark, right? Is what I read in verse 24, can I interpret that as, as Simon repenting? Again, for whatever reason, Luke does not think it's important enough to, to tell us that. But, but that's what I hope. What I hope is that this is the story of how an evil sorcerer came to see his folly and was saved. I think it would be amazing to get to heaven one day and be able to sit down and talk to this Simon and have him fill in all these blanks to the story that Luke left out for me. But what I hope you and I can glean from Simon's story is not just us to get entangled in bitterment and debate and argument about things like witchcraft or palm readers or whether or not it's okay for us to watch Harry Potter Right, that this isn't necessarily for us about magical stones or the validity of psychics or mediums. This is about us understanding that there are people in our society all around us who have reduced God or their idea of God to something that they feel like they can control. And something that they feel like they can manipulate for themselves. God is just some sort of a power, again, to be harnessed that can bring you notoriety and fame. So for us, it's about how do we react? How do we respond to them? How is it that we can open their eyes to real power? Right? Powers that can't be harnessed or restrained by our puny little three-pound brains. This is power that we're talking about, people that is so unfathomable that it existed before time. This is power that existed before space and before matter. It's power that with a single word, storms must stop raging. That at a single word, blind people receive back their sight. It's a type of power that with a breath, life begins. You see, it's this type of power that can reach even into the darkest, most hardened hearts like Simon's. And he can make them new. And I want to make sure that you realize that he's still doing that to this day. 
There's a name probably most of you don't recognize. Uh, There's a gentleman by the name of John Ramirez. Uh, John's story is fascinating, but John spent 25 years as a high priest in the occult. Uh, John, at the height of his power, was one of the highest ranking members of the Church of Satan. At seven years old, as a young boy, he was marked by his own family for this job. And as he grew and as he was trained, he he admits to have worshipped the devil. He claims to have had power. He was very respected amongst this group uh, of fellow, I guess, believers, you would call them. And he admits to have harnessed the power of demons. Today, John is a pastor and an evangelist. And we say, how? How is that possible? If you ask John, well, he'll tell you is that in the midst of a deep depression, Jesus appeared to him in a dream. That he woke up and he said he felt as if shackles had fallen off of him and he was a free man. He gave his life to Christ. And now today he travels the country sharing his story. Sharing how, yes, there was power that was given to him by the enemy. But how that power pales in comparison to that of the one true God. There's another name that you also probably don't recognize. A name of Sandy Boyd. Sandy's story starts very similarly to John's. Sandy, again, as a young girl, was dedicated to Satan by her father. See, this this type of practice had been in Sandy's family forever. Her grandmother practiced witchcraft and voodoo. As she would grow, her, her father would threaten her with violence to keep the family's satanic secrets hush. As a teenager, it was her father who introduced her to drugs as a way to control and manipulate her. As a teenager, it was her own father that offered Sandy as a sexual sacrifice to Satan. Sandy will tell you that she herself learned witchcraft and practiced it. And one day, as a young adult and a young mother herself, her family came to her and reminded Sandy of her obligation to dedicate her daughter to Satan the same way that she had been. And even in her drug-riddled and abused state, it was all too much for Sandy to bear. So, so Sandy went and she got her daughter. She borrowed her drug dealer's car and found a razor blade. She dropped her daughter off at a sitter's where she knew she would be safe, and she took her drug dealer's car, and she drove out to a quiet place in the middle of nowhere where she would be left alone. And the plan that day for Sandy was that she was finally going to find freedom and peace. All the voices that had been in her head since she was a little girl were finally going to be quiet. And as she was about to use that razor blade for what she had intended it for, something caught her eye in her drug dealer's car. Right between the the driver's seat and the center console, she saw something small and something green. And she reached down and pulled it out. And it was a Gideon's Bible, a copy of the New Testament, in her drug dealer's car. She sat in her drug dealer's car with a copy of the New Testament in one hand and a razor blade in the other. And she says that she sat and she read the gospel of Matthew for the very first time. She had never seen a Bible once in her life. And as she read Matthew's gospel, she began to cry. She dropped the razor blade and she asked Jesus to be her Lord. I can't vouch for any of these people's stories. I wasn't there. 
I also can't vouch for all of their theology, that if you go and look them up online, that they may want to bestow upon you. But what I can tell you is that the Internet is full of stories, stories like John's, stories like Sandy's, and yes, stories like Simon's that we find in the book of Acts. All of them are are lives that were transformed by being shown the power of the true God, by being shown the power of the author of life. Right? Simon, Simon witnessed it as Philip and Peter and John preached the gospel and performed miracles in the name of Jesus. Mr. Ramirez says that he was visited by Jesus in a dream or a vision. Right? It, was, it was Sandy who miraculously found a Gideon's Bible in a place where a Bible should have never been. Miracles, they come in all different shapes, they come in all different sizes, and very often they do happen when we least expect them. But what I can tell you for certain is that when God moves in the miraculous, whether it's a large, undeniable spectacle, or whether it's in the simple placement of a Bible where one should not be, or whether it's the simple miracle of you being in the right place at the right time to show someone love whose life has been mired by darkness and pain for far too long, when God moves in the miraculous, It's always so that his name can be made famous. So that the one who witnesses the miracle will have the chance to see and to know real power. For everyone who who identifies with the Simons of this world, for those who do think that God is a power to be used and that he's a power that can be exploited, the moral of the story is that even those trapped in the darkest places will still be offered the opportunity to repent. I do not believe that there is a line to be crossed. Whether you identify as a liar, a witch, a warlock, a palm reader, a medium, a devil worshiper, what you have to do is lay down the lies of the enemy. And you have to be willing to see God for who he truly is. You have to see through those distortions and see that God is truly a loving father. As we close today... Along that same line, we turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it begins with this command for Christians to pray for all people, especially those who govern us. And we're told to do this so that we can live a peaceful life in a godly way without being bothered. But then it says this in verses 3 and 4. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So no matter how deep the hole is that you think you might be in right now, I tell you this morning that you can take refuge in the fact that what we just read says that God desires all people to be saved. It says he wants all people to come to him and find real knowledge. He he wants them to know the truth. He wants them to experience real power. And church, what I pray for you today is that you will walk in that power, that you will walk with the confidence as you go into the darkest places, knowing that the power that dwells within you is so much greater than the power that lives in this world. Pray with me.